I don't know if you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There is such a constant avalanche of new releases, it can be hard to keep up. Luckily, Podcast Playlist can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You can see it in everyday life as how Chile has changed and how Chile has been a success story. The opening of the market meant uh, economic growth. This neoliberal experiment goes the farthest in Chile. But that success has remained at the macroeconomic level, has not reached families, has not reached the people. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. September 2023 marked the 50th anniversary of a bloody coup d'etat that toppled Chile's elected socialist government. In 1973, troops attacked and bombed the presidential palace. Soon after, the country's president, Salvador Allende, was dead. General Augusto Pinochet and the military junta then led 17 years of violence and repression. No, no, otro norte. More than 3,000 people were killed or disappeared. What is less well-known is that the junta replaced President Allende's socialist project with an extreme pro-market system that was inspired and mentored by a group of economic scholars, including famed neoliberalist Milton Friedman from the University of Chicago. Under Pinochet's dictatorship, everything in the country, from water to education, the pension system, and health, was privatized. Chile became a grand lab for neoliberalism. The thing is that neoliberalism is a project, you know, of changing society. It's not just a set of economic policies. But actually, this is a deeper project, and it has to do with a transformation of society and of the polity itself, you know. And making sure that this won't change, you know, ever again. This intense free market policy continues to this day. And while it has made Chile a very rich country, it also has one of the highest levels of income inequality in the world. In 2021, more than 80% of Chile's total national wealth belonged to the top 10%. Most of the Chileans have very low wages and don't have the access to a decent welfare state, while you can see the richness in your face. So I think that uh, that has created this sense of of injustice that is partly uh, an explanation of the social outburst. Today we are taking a look at the impacts of this deep adherence to neoliberalism and its future in this South American country. Ideas contributor Kyle G. Brown brings us The Chile Experiment. It's the fall of 2019, Santiago, Chile. Local TV news airs footage of young people busting through a large metal gate into a subway station, refusing to pay for tickets. 
It was sparked by a price hike of metro fares on October 6th of that year. Over several days, hundreds barged through gates and jumped turnstiles in metro stations across the city. Some stations were vandalized and set on fire. Two and a half weeks later, more than a million people poured onto the streets of the capital and soon the protests spread to the rest of the country. But their anger wasn't just about subway fares. It was about an absence of government, including pensions that retirees cannot live on, substandard public health care and schooling, with the private systems out of reach for the majority. It was the country's biggest protest since Chile became a democracy in 1990. In the early days of the demonstrations, an interview with President Sebastian Piñera appears in the Financial Times newspaper, in which he praises Chile as an oasis of democratic stability. But two days later, Piñera declares a national state of emergency and sends the army into the streets. Police conducted mass arrests, unleashed water cannons and shot at protesters. Curfews were imposed pouring more fuel on the flames of public anger. The Attorney General registered more than 4,000 victims of police violence, including hundreds of children. Actions that reminded many Chileans of the brutal military dictatorship of the 1970s and 80s. Protesters who damaged public and private property were denounced as delinquents and vandals by President Piñera. He warned the country was in peril. We are at war against a powerful, implacable enemy who does not respect anyone or anything, who is willing to use violence and crime without any limit. But the protests continued. Referring to the subway price hike, demonstrators chanted, it's not 30 pesos, it's 30 years. More than three decades of pro-market policies, say protesters, have done little for the working class. Outside of Chile, though, the uprising was unexpected, given the country's record economic growth. And it's true, we've had all those successes. Chile became a richer country, became a rich country in the region. And so the rich have become richer, but the reduction in poverty is really minimum when you consider the level of growth. Claudia Heiss is a political science professor at the University of Chile. I mean, the problem in Chile is not really... It's not really poverty, it's more in, it's inequality rather than poverty, I think. When you compare it with other countries in the region, we are less poor. But we are not sharing the uh, results of growth. So I think that creates a sense of injustice that has to do with this politicization of inequality that, uh, that is linked to the private burden lived by families in the form of dead and of a sense that nobody takes care of you, nobody protects you. I mean, all the signals from the political system protect the powerful. So the neoliberals thought inequality doesn't matter. It does matter, okay? People do compare themselves to others. It matters. It's very normal. It's very human. Sebastian Edwards is a Chilean economics professor at UCLA in Los Angeles. And the demonstrations, the most often heard chant or demand was, we want dignity. And people in the lower classes are not treated in Chile with dignity by the upper classes. So if you put all of that together and you add to that that the neoliberal system, the growth 
started to sputter, to slow down, because that's what always happens. Everything has diminishing returns, right? So you put all of this together, you get a cocktail where you have a potentially explosive situation. And that's what happened. It's no accident the uprising of 2019 was triggered by transport costs. Santiago's fares have been ranked among the highest in the world in relation to commuters' salaries. The day after the price rose, then-economy minister Juan Andres Fontaine on CNN Chile invited commuters to just wake up earlier for cheaper pre-rush hour fares. And Finance Minister Felipe Larraín told journalists that while some consumer prices were rising, romantics could be consoled that flowers were getting cheaper. Both ministers were then sacked in a cabinet reshuffle, which did little to repair the government's image with the public. Claudia Heiss. This distancing between society and political institution is also expressed in the rejection of elites and in the rejection of politicians because they began to be perceived as extremely encapsulated and unable to channel social pressure and social demands. So, I mean, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the purpose of politics? Politics is supposed to be there. Politics and political institutions in a democracy are there to build a bridge between society and political decision. And that bridge was very weak and was has been increasingly being damaged by the results of the political process. It's a political process detached from society. In 2020, a referendum was held on whether to change a constitution that enshrined a radical pro-market economy. Close to 80% of voters said yes. So an ambitious new constitution was drafted by a publicly elected group made up mostly of citizens, academics, and led by an indigenous rights activist. It included provisions for universal public health care, as well as housing and education. It also included greater autonomy for indigenous people, rights for LGBTQ people, and legalized abortion. For some, this went too far. There's definitely a backlash. Aldo Madariaga is a political science professor at the University of Diego Portales in Santiago and author of Neoliberal Resilience, Lessons in Democracy and Development from Latin America and Eastern Europe. Definitely a backlash. Things like, you know, gender parity, the the importance of, of gender parity. These things you thought, many people thought, like I did, that this were, you know, this was the new Chile. This was the new normal. And now there's a backlash on all, you know, cultural, political, uh, socioeconomic aspects. And in September 2022, 62% voted against the draft. Its rejection was also blamed on a disinformation campaign by the far right, including the false claim that women would be allowed to abort until the ninth month. A second proposed constitution is being drafted in 2023. But this time, the writing committee is no longer made up of the general public. Instead, election to the 50-member council was limited to politicians, with the right wing winning the majority of seats, including members who have publicly defended Pinochet. Particularly the right is really playing the polarizing game. The right, you know, the right is playing with fire. Initial concerns over social and economic justice have been eclipsed by questions of crime and immigration. 
Conservatives on the Constitutional Council are also keen to keep clauses that promote the pro-market principle. Claudia Heiss. Chile still lives under the shadow of the military dictatorships. So, in fact, the current constitution makes impossible the idea of a welfare state. For instance, presidents of the left get elected, they get the votes, they win majorities in Congress, but even with all those majorities, they cannot implement redistributive policies because they go against provisions in the constitution, and so the constitutional court acts as a guardian of this model, of this neoliberal model, and makes it impossible for those things that the majority want to become law. The roots of this constitutional impasse can be traced to the overthrow of the socialist government of Salvador Allende in 1973. When Allende took office three years earlier, there was a demand among students and many on the left, as well as in the working class, for a massive change to the economic system. Inspired by the Cuban Revolution and the worldwide political upheaval of 1968, workers and activists occupied properties and companies. They demanded that Allende's government nationalize private companies and dismantle the plantations of large landowners. Raul Gonzalez is an economist at the Academy of Christian Humanism University in Santiago. El gobierno de Allende. The Allende government implements a series of measures, such as the nationalization of the 90 most important companies. Nationalization of the bank. It's incredible looking back. The bank was nationalized. That meant that the credit was in the hands of the state. So you had the nationalization of the 90 biggest companies that were defined as monopolies. You had a land reform process with the transfer of large estates to agricultural workers or landless peasants. We had the nationalization of copper, which was the main export. Chilean economist Sebastian Edwards says the takeover of the copper mines wasn't well received in the United States, to say the least. And the copper mines are owned by... American companies. And the process through which they are nationalized is a constitutional amendment that is passed unanimously by Congress. So there's no one against it. It's 100% in favor. And what the government decides to do is not to pay compensation for the property that has been expropriated. The Allende government justified this by saying the foreign mining companies actually owed the state money, that many of these companies had made excessive profits from Chilean natural resources. But the nationalization plan made some dangerous enemies. That creates a rift within the government. There's a group of people within the government who think that is really stupid because the Americans are going to become mad and are going to make efforts to topple us. And that group, which is inside the government, says, let's give them $1 million. This, we have taken the number one deposits of copper in the world. Let's give them a little. And Allende says, no, zero. Okay? And that then creates, again, something that the Americans react to. And they react to by now cutting completely all loans to Chile, and also voting against Chile getting loans from the World Bank, because the Americans have the greatest share of the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the Inter-American Development Bank, USAID. So 
Chile gets, no, gets cut off from the global capital market. Historian Gabriel Salazar says the Americans saw Allende as a threat, a socialist government that could inspire others. The United States reacted against Allende. Because if Allende was successful in his attempts, the model which represents Allende, uh, possible that uh, all America, Latin America was accepted. That the social democracy in Europe, possibly as well. If Allende was successful with his government, that example was to irradiate dangerously for all the world. So the state was obliged to destroy the experience of Allende. The U.S. had already tried to stop Allende's previous runs for president. But in 1970, Allende scraped by to a narrow victory. Documents later published by the U.S.'s National Security Archive reveal that Nixon and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, waged a covert campaign to stop Allende from taking office before his inauguration. In one briefing, Kissinger said Allende's election, quote, poses for us one of the most serious challenges ever faced in this hemisphere. As is also clear in recorded phone calls between Nixon and his press secretary at the time, Ron Ziegler. Yeah. Yes, sir. What did you, have you said anything, Ron, with regard to the uh, ITT in Chile? How did you handle uh, uh, The State Department did, dealt with that today. Oh, they did? Yes, sir. What did they do? Deny it? Uh, they uh, denied it, uh, but they were cautious on how they dealt with the Corey statement because they were afraid that might backfire. Why would a Corey say? Well, Corey said that he had received instructions uh, uh, to uh, do anything short of uh, uh, a Dominican type uh, alleged to have said that. Corey did? Right. So what, how did that get out? He put that out? Well, uh, Anderson received that from some source. Al Haig is sitting with me now. Oh, yeah. It was a report contained in an IT&T uh, oh, yeah. thing, but well, he was, he was instructed to. Well, but I hoped, it, but he just failed. Son of a bitch, that's his main problem. He should have kept Allende from getting in. Well, in any event, state has state denied it today, and they referred to to your uh, comments about Latin America and Chile, yeah, and, and uh, so you just refer to that on that one. Fine, okay. Yes, sir. The U.S. financed Allende's political opponents and had cut off aid and credit to Chile, all in an effort to make it impossible for Allende to govern and to foment a coup d'état. Economist Raúl González. Production slows down and there's a North American trade blockade. We have hoarding. Sectors that have been nationalized are not yet providing sufficient returns to the state. Instead, it's running a large and growing fiscal deficit, which is worsening because of the boycott. All of this is generating inflation, a huge amount of inflation. In a speech to the UN General Assembly in 1972, Allende said the US blockade was indeed asphyxiating the economy. No solo sufrimos el bloqueo financiero. Not only do we suffer from the financial blockade, we are also victims of clear aggressions. This financial asphyxiation of brutal proportions, given the characteristics of the Chilean economy, has translated into a severe limitation of our ability to obtain equipment, spare parts, supplies, 
food products and medicines. All Chileans are suffering the consequences of these measures. This is legally and morally unacceptable. The CIA helped finance a national strike by the trucking industry, causing major fuel shortages. Inflation was soaring over 500%. Wages were plummeting. By September 11, 1973, Chile had become a powder keg. That morning, the fuse was lit. As tanks approached the presidential palace, military aircraft flew over the capital and began bombing. Allende took to the airwaves for the last time that morning, describing the attack and denouncing imperialism, multinationals and the soldiers who betrayed their country. He told the people to defend themselves and not be humiliated, but not to put their lives at risk. But troops were approaching, and Allende shot himself dead using a gun once gifted to him by Fidel Castro. His suicide was backed up by an autopsy in 2011. In a rundown part of central Santiago, aging printing machines are whirring away at Kimantu Publishing House. In 1973, it was shut down by the military junta, but reopened in 2000. I'm meeting one of the editors, Mario Ramos. He was a young student activist when the military overthrew Allende's government 50 years ago. I was in the city of Coquimbo at that time, in a building we occupied called Moises. We knew the coup was coming, but there was no way to resist. That was the truth. There were never enough weapons to defend ourselves. Nor did we imagine it would be so bloody, so savage, so brutal. Our comrade Alonso Lasso disappeared. They took him in Copiapó, and they killed him. In different parts of the province, they began to raid houses. And if they found books from Kimantu, they took them, they piled them up in the street, and burned them like crazy arsonists. The young boys who walked around with long hair at that time, the soldiers grabbed them and cut their hair in the street. It was brutal. The dead appeared in the Mapocho River. It's impossible to describe. En la calle. No, no, sí fue fue brutal y y los muertos aparecían en el río Mapocho y no, no, indescriptible. Kimantu was one of the enemies from within for Pinochet's forces, which wasted no time in shutting it down. Bueno, that Kimantu lasted until 73. They killed its staff. They killed their workers. They burned its books. Mario shows me black and white photos from that time. These are photos of burnt books. And those are people who disappeared? Yes, they died, were murdered, disappeared. And those are soldiers taking the books, you see. 
But Mario remembers a better time before the coup. Under Allende, he says, significant improvements were being made to the lives of average Chileans. Giving Chileans strength, aspirations. Chileans had a, a future on the horizon, and the coup destroyed it. But it, it not only destroyed institutions, it destroyed the soul of the Chilean people. It destroyed the identity of the Chilean people. That no longer exists today. That is gone. So it was worse than an atomic bomb. An atomic bomb destroys people, as happened twice in Japan. But the strength or the identity or the history of the people remains. But here, no. That Chile no longer exists. It's no longer here. It disappeared. No está. Desapareció. You're listening to The Chile Experiment on Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. As we heard in the first half of the programme, Chile's 1973 coup d'état derailed Salvador Allende's socialist project. In its place, Augusto Pinochet's military regime installed a pro-market system long before the reforms of Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher. Chile's neoliberal program changed its trajectory and has altered not only its economy, but its society to this day. Here's Ideas contributor Kyle G. Brown with the second half of The Chile Experiment. In 1973, when Augusto Pinochet and his military junta took power, they didn't have an economic program. In fact, they scarcely had a plan at all. In economic or socioeconomic terms, there is no clear model in the minds of the military. Raul González is an economics professor at the Academic University of Christian Humanism in Santiago. What they are clear on is they don't want socialism. That much is clear. It couldn't be socialist. But nor could it be a system where the state was secondary, because they've been educated with the idea of a strong state. But by 1974 and 75, what begins to take shape is the idea of a liberal, ultra-liberal model. This ultra-liberal or neoliberal model took root 20 years earlier, in the unlikely form of a student exchange program, known as the Chile Project, launched in 1955 by the U.S. State Department. Chilean economic students were flown to the University of Chicago home to a new school of thought advocating radical free trade and deregulation, 
a profound break from the West's economic orthodoxy of the time, which still promoted a strong government. Graduates returning home to Chile were nicknamed the Chicago Boys. One of the university's most influential figures was Professor Milton Friedman. He's been called the godfather of neoliberalism. Here he is, talking about his ideal society in a 2009 interview. Well, my personal utopia is one which takes the individual as the key element in society. So you would have, essentially, in my good society, a very limited government devoted to the tasks of defense, of justice, of legislating rules, and very little else. Mm -hmm. The rest would be left to the free individual activities of individuals joined together through the operation of a private and competitive market. In the 1960s, Ricardo French Davis was one of the young Chilean economic students sent to the University of Chicago, where Friedman taught, along with other like-minded, pro-market scholars. French Davis was aware of Friedman's fame. I have heard of a very extreme economist in Chicago that was very famous, extreme right. Yes. But he's, he's not the only professor. The Chicago School of Economics was a hotbed for neoliberal scholars. The goal was to convince countries to allow unfettered capitalism where private markets would supersede the state in most areas. Too daring a concept at the time, even for the US, where the government still played a significant role. And so they first set their sights on Chile. Ricardo French Davis has just retired as an economics professor at the University of Chile. He's also the author of several books, including The Neoliberal Pandemic. He was one of the exchange students in the 1960s. And what I do when I arrived to Chicago, I did not take the courses of Friedman, but I went to listen to his classes and confirmed to me he's an extremist. He's ideological, but bright. French Davis would go on to become a critic of the neoliberal policies implemented under Pinochet's dictatorship. But unlike French Davis, many of the Chilean exchange students were passionate converts to neoliberalism. They returned to Chile to spread a pro-market gospel that clashed with prevailing ideas of a strong state and robust public spending. At first, these young economists labored in relative obscurity at think tanks and universities and their notions of privatization and deregulation were derided as fanciful, if not downright deranged. UCLA economist Sebastian Edwards again. He's the author of The Chile Project, the story of the Chicago boys and the downfall of neoliberalism. Before the coup, Edwards says, these young economists and their theories of neoliberalism were ridiculed in Chilean society. And the Chicago boys, no one pays any attention to them. They are considered to be to, to completely crazy. But after the coup, they urged the military junta to adopt a decidedly pro-market plan. And the generals are listening. The military know nothing about economics. And they are like military, they are nationalistics. So they don't want to open the economy to the rest of the world. They don't want to allow foreign investment. They don't want to privatize back the steel mill that was nationalized during Allende, because th they think, well, it should be in the hands of the state, 
and a very important component of the state is the armed forces. And if we have a steel mill that we own, if we have a war with Argentina, we can start building tanks. But they, nonetheless, the Chicago boys come in and become advisors and little by little start becoming more and more influential. And they put together this neoliberal program, which has markets at every level. And it transformed the Chilean economy in a massive way. Economist Raúl González. Entonces, con la acción de ese grupo consistente, muy consistente. So with the involvement of this very determined group, who were very convinced and doctrinaire, they had a decisive influence in guiding Chilean policy. A model that still wasn't clear where it was going, but it was headed towards a unique model in terms of liberalism. Un modelo único en términos de liberalismo. Economist Ricardo French Davis says, after the coup, he watches with consternation as the influence of his fellow alumni grows under the dictatorship, until they begin to take over the management of the country's economy. Pinochet trusts them, and they took almost full command. And the Chicago boys set out to convert Chile into a neoliberal mecca. The students from Chicago, they believe what Friedman says. And they come in the government to say, we have to reduce the size and the strength of the state, and we must leave the market to do the things, because, quotation, Friedman, the market knows what to do, not the state. French Davis is a member of the Christian Democratic Party, and at the time he was a contributor to its magazine Spirit and Politics. Where we wrote the first critical paper against the policy of the neoliberals. Criticizing neoliberalism was dangerous, so no names were attached to the 1975 article. The report was anonymous because it was really risky to put your name in something that you criticize the government. We already knew by 75 that were many hundreds of people murdered, disappeared because in, they were in the opposition to the government. Of course, we did not mention the name of Pinochet. If, if you start talking against, directly against Pinochet, you have to go to exile if you want to stay alive. Many people that you knew were murdered. This grand neoliberal experiment would serve as an example for other countries. Because we're talking about a time when neither Margaret Thatcher had emerged in England nor Reagan in the U.S. Economist Raúl González again. And when they did, Chile had already made great strides in that direction. Indeed, in 1982, three years after Margaret Thatcher took office, another key architect of neoliberalism, Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek, wrote to her, recommending Chile's pro-market reforms. Thatcher embraced some of these ideas. But, she told Hayek, some of the more radical Chilean reforms could never be passed by the UK's democratic institutions or get public consent. But the Chicago boys, working with Chile's junta, had no such constraints. 
They seduced certain members of the military elite, especially Pinochet. In a sense, this was to be a refounding of Chile, a new Chile. The Chicago boys' argument was that Chile was on the wrong track. It wasn't only the thousand days of Allende. It wasn't only the 1960s with agrarian reform and private property being questioned. All of that was bad enough. But they say that it goes all the way back to colonization. The Spanish colony was a statist colony that prevented true development. The true key to development anywhere at any time, because neoliberalism is universalist. Everywhere its proponents will say the same thing. And what's the key? Private enterprise. A state that allows the free market to function with maximum freedom and where nobody imposes rules. That, say the neoliberals, is the way forward to a new Chile. A new Chile will emerge. A new Chile needed a new constitution, and just months after the coup, the junta formed a commission to draft a new charter. One of its core principles is subsidiarity. Political scientist Claudia Heiss. Subsidiarity is actually a concept that was born in Europe, and it was born to protect civil society from the state. So it was, in its origin, it had to do with protecting, for instance, the sphere of religion and other spheres from the interference of the state. The concept can be traced back to Aristotle. It's been evoked over the centuries to ward against undue state interference in civil society, from volunteer groups to the church. But Chile under Pinochet expanded this concept to the markets. But in Chile, it acquired a very peculiar meaning, a meaning that is not used like that anywhere else. And it means, in reality, the prevalence of the market over any other consideration. So in Chile, subsidiarity does not mean civil society uh, as protected from the state. It means the market as the main provider of public services, even above the state. So in Chile, what it became, the concept of subsidiarity, what it became in the hands of the neoliberal designers of our institutions, of our current uh, constitution, it became a way to say the the market is a better provider of all kinds of services, including uh, uh, public services. And so the state should be allowed to intervene only when the market is not willing or not able to intervene. So any time that the market wants to do something, they have the priority. And this is what the Constitution consecrated. This is what the Constitution guarantees. Which means that if the private sector can provide healthcare, then the state shouldn't provide healthcare. Political science professor Aldo Madariaga. If the private sector can provide education, then the state shouldn't set up schools. So it seems to turn the logic uh, to which many of us are accustomed in other Western countries on its head, and namely that the default position seems to be one that the state will provide schooling or health or whatever it is, and where that is insufficient, a private actor will come in to supplement the supply. But here it seems to be the opposite. Exactly. That's precisely the, the, the interpretation. But even then, there's a, a lag between the moment you realize that the private alternatives are not enough and the state is allowed to get in and, and provide some alternatives. So you, you even have to justify that because the state is a suspect, right? It's basically, it's basically it's a, it's a huge suspicion of what the state can and cannot do. The main, the main impact is the mistrust 
uh, and the lack of confidence with not just democracy, but political institutions uh, more generally. Democracy indexes show that Chile is usually very high on, on things like respect for democratic rights, regular elections, nobody messes with elections, uh, so far as we know. So in a continent what it, that is read with problems like those, you know, it shows high in democratic indexes. But people don't trust democracy. It's on the lowest levels of trust for democracy in the region. That's a paradox, you know? It's a, it's a functioning democracy, but a functioning democracy in which people don't believe in democracy. And in general, they don't believe in democratic, you know, in, in political institutions. They don't believe in the parliament. They don't believe in the presidency. They don't believe in political parties. So all of those building blocks of democracy, of modern democracy, they don't believe in that. Under Pinochet's dictatorship, in matters of security, the state was ubiquitous and merciless. But in other matters, the state withdrew and was replaced by private companies providing public services, from schools and pensions to health care. The regime slashed corporate taxes, reduced regulations in banking and in education, allowing municipalities to run schools. In 1975, Milton Friedman flew down for the first time to Chile to meet with Pinochet and Friedman urged the dictator to introduce a wave of dramatic budget cuts as part of a shock therapy. Sebastian Edwards. And the result is what some people have called, and I think that with good reason, a miracle, in the sense that Chile goes from being the number eight country in Latin America to be the number one by a wide margin. But it is a miracle with a very serious original sin. It's was created under a dictatorship, under a bloody dictatorship, under a dictatorship where the military violated human rights massively, right and left, killed people, tortured people, sent people into exile, made people disappear, and that is the original sin. Chile's free market experiment continues to this day. But it wasn't until the final few years of Pinochet's dictatorship and the return of democracy that Chile's economy took off. So the miracle happens, the, the, the very rapid growth starts actually around 87, so the last two years of the junta. And then it continues through the first 10 years back to democracy. Now the question is, which policies did they have in place? The same as the junta, they didn't change anything. That's the key. I mean, you have a country that had the same income per capita as Ecuador and Costa Rica in 1986. And today it has double that of Ecuador and 50% more than Costa Rica. And it's the number one. So what happened is that the miracle happens under President Elwin, Frey and Lagos. But they did not change any of the policies of the Chicago Boys. Edwards is referring to the three successive presidents who took office from 1990 when Chile returned to democracy. They were part of a center-left coalition, the Concertación, which governed for 20 years. But in 2021, left-of-center Gabriel Boric was elected president. He wants to break the chains tying Chile to neoliberalism. He says the Concertación... All they did was manage the neoliberal program. And he's right. That's what they did. 
What he fails to say is that managing of the neoliberal program produced this amazing result. Not everyone agrees the results are amazing. While poverty has fallen sharply, the lower and middle classes are squeezed by Chile's high cost of living. And access to essential services is limited, in part because of high out-of-pocket costs for health care and other services. Political scientist Claudia Heiss. The fact that Chile grew so much also, I think, has had an effect in increasing the sense of injustice because you can see the economic growth everywhere. You can see, you know, construction. You can see the, the price of life getting higher. We have one of the highest prices in the region. So it's much more expensive to live in Chile than to live in Argentina or to live in Mexico. But the salaries are not enough to live at, at that scale. So you have most of the Chileans are have very low wages and don't have the access to a decent welfare state, while you can see the richness in your face. What's more, it's the low wage earners who are hardest hit by Chile's tax system. The bulk of taxes doesn't come from the rich, it comes from the poor. It's a very regressive system where more than half of the public revenue that the treasurer gets comes from the taxes that every Chilean pays any time you buy something. So when you buy milk, you pay a tax. You, bu you, bu you pay an added value tax. When you buy bread, you pay tax. And this tax, of course, is a much bigger percentage of the income of a poor person than of a rich person. So in, in general, you could say that the state in Chile is run from taxes, sales tax. Some Chileans are in such financial straits that they resort to desperate measures to pay medical bills or tuition. So what happens in Chile is that the, because you have to pay for everything and because provision of uh, welfare is so, uh, so weak, so everything is based on the private debt. So we have a very healthy macroeconomic system. When you see Chile from, a, from outside, from abroad, from, a, from afar, you see a very healthy system. The state is not in debt. Uh, but people are in debt. So what happened here is that the, the debt was transferred from public debt to private debt. So people have to make, you know, bingos and sell things to pay for health. When somebody gets sick, they have to manage. Everybody has to manage alone. This difficulty in making ends meet, getting affordable care or schooling, has led to cracks in Chilean society. In 2011, a student-led protest saw tens of thousands hit the streets demanding reforms to the education system. In Chile, the majority of high schools and universities are private, with high tuition fees. Here is a report from Al Jazeera about a 2015 protest where two students were killed. Once again, protests which begin peacefully in Chile erupt in violence. <laughs> Police try to break up huge crowds swarming the streets of Santiago. These are teachers and students demanding free education for everyone. What we are demanding is that education be taken from the municipalities and that it come directly from the national government. This means we ensure the funding at the start of the year to guarantee that public, free and quality education is also a reality. Under relentless public pressure, then-President Michel Bachelet passed reforms in 2016. They allowed students from low-income families to attend university at certain institutions for free. It was a victory, though a relatively small one, in light of the continued dominance of the private sector.
other movements have set about weakening the neoliberal state. A microeconomic revolution has begun in the working class area of Recoleta, in the north of Santiago. Initiated by its mayor, Daniel Jadwe, a member of the Communist Party of Chile. In a country where there's no right to health, where we have the most expensive medicines in the world, the first priority was to lower the price of medicine. The market only operates where there's a guaranteed return. In small localities where demand isn't enough to justify the investment, the market simply disappears. And since the state cannot meddle in economic issues, there are areas that have no pharmacies in 60 municipalities. There are 213 localities that have no optical services. The number of localities with no bookstores, 297. I am talking about 85% of the national territory without a place to buy a book. What the neoliberal model intends to do is commodify every aspect of people's lives. Neoliberalism, this form of hyper-capitalism, hides just how destructive it is with respect to society and nature. It is based on the premise that the human being has an economic value from birth to death, such that his whole life is given over to the market and everything he needs can be converted into a unit of capital. So we found that we had to move in the opposite direction and that it was necessary to decommodify the most sensitive aspects of people's lives within our powers as a local government. And we started with medicine, then with glasses, then books, housing, culture. So in 2015, the mayor began opening city-run pharmacies, bookstores, created public housing, and even set up a university. Now, more than 130 municipalities, even those run by conservatives, have similar schemes. But some have run into financial difficulties, and Hanue has recently been accused of bribery, which he denies. The scandal hasn't helped those trying to scale up such public programs. And yet these municipal initiatives are proving successful, along with the state education reforms we mentioned earlier and pension reforms, all of which suggests the ground is shifting. Neoliberalism has begun to retreat. Economist Sebastian Edwards. Pensions until 2008, what you got as a pension was the result of what you personally had accumulated in your personal savings account. And if you didn't accumulate anything, you got zero, and that was it. You lived under the bridge. End of story. Uh, starting in 2008, if you didn't contribute or didn't contribute enough, you got a public subsidy. And starting in 2022, there is something called the PGU, which is a Pension Garantizada Universal, Universal Guaranteed Pension where you get about 80% of the poverty line, independently of whether you had anything in your uh, savings account or not. So you're still below the poverty line. The, the, that doesn't matter. It's, uh, the, what matters is that uh, you've moved away from individual, personal responsibility to a system where it's universal, it's guaranteed, and it's in addition to whatever you have accumulated. So now this government wants to increase those guarantee to an even higher level. 
which I think is a very good idea, right? So all of these are changes that are chipping away the neoliberal system. Where Edward sees the twilight of neoliberalism, others see piecemeal reforms that could be reversed unless they're buttressed by a new constitution. That opportunity was missed in the referendum of 2021. With conservatives dominating the current constitutional council, some fear the new draft will provide few of the reforms proposed the first time round. Publishing House Editor Mario Ramos. What's happening now is a total mess. They're just writing up the Pinochet Constitution all over again. There is no difference. The other constitution that was being drafted was different, with a different focus. Not this one. It's the same. So if you repeat the same thing, if the crisis continues, the social problems, drug trafficking, the problems of marginalization, unemployment, they won't be resolved. Ultimately, the people will decide in the December 2023 referendum. Political scientist Claudia Heiss has been part of efforts to host public debates to make sure as many people as possible participate in December's vote, be it yes or no to the latest draft. But with right-wing parties virtually in control of writing it, she fears they'll move to continue Chile's neoliberal experiment. Some of the people that will write the constitution want didn't want to change the constitution in the first place. So they will try to have a new constitution that looks as much as possible the same as the current constitution. And I, I think that will determine whether the new constitution is approved or rejected. Because who wants to approve democratically a new constitution that says the same as the dictatorial constitution? So this is the danger we're facing. I think so. I think it's if the new constitution looks too much like the old one, then approving it would be legitimizing basically the neoliberal model that has been protected by the legal institutions all these years. And indeed, by extension, it would be perpetuating a constitution imposed by a dictator more than 35 years ago. That's right. Democra now democratically. So now, no, now we cannot blame the dictatorship. It would be our fault. You are listening to The Chile Experiment by Ideas contributor Kyle G. Brown. You can go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, to see additional material for this documentary. Special thanks to Esther Brown Madrid. This documentary was produced by Mary Link. Technical production, Danielle Duval and Pat Martin. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.